Billy Graham was blessed with a gospel ministry that spanned eight decades. An incredible servant and instrument in the hand of the Lord. In 1950, Billy Graham showed up with his team right here in the city of Boston for his first evangelistic gathering. Packed out Park Street Church there where he preached. And then it spilled on out to the Boston Common. 50,000 plus people gathered to hear him preach the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a massive fruitfulness uh, through his preaching over the decades. During that Boston visit, somebody thoughtfully asked Billy Graham, what is the thing you need prayer for the most? And here's what Billy said. The one thing I need most is people praying for me that I would not take credit for the successes that we see across the city. Lest my lips turn to clay. You see, Billy Graham knew the source of his success. He knew the the source of fruitfulness, the the source of his, his strength in ministry. Grounded and rooted in the Lord, he knew the words and the truth of the Lord Jesus who says in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. A man with a prominent ministry, yet profoundly humble. He served God from the strength of God, actively dependent upon God in ministry. So he worked faithfully And God worked powerfully. Active dependence. We work, God works. We work, God works. Billy Graham served, served God from the strength of God. Now this morning in our sermon passage, we're going to see another servant of the Lord, another instrument of the Lord. Serve God through the strength of God. Let's turn our Bibles to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 394. Page 394, this morning we're marching along our series in Ezra. We started uh, in mid-September, and we'll finish in a couple weeks. Uh, the, re- the series is called Return from Exile, Return from Exile. And we look at Ezra chapter 8 this morning. I'll read the whole chapter. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Elioni, the son of Zariah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Adon, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shelemith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, 
their names being Eliphet, Jeuel, Shemaiah, and with them 60 men, of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakor, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place Casophia, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casophia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. And Hashabiah with him, Jeshiah of the son of Merari, and with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is good, is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels of the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold and 20 bowls of gold worth 100... 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free offering, free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, Noadiah, the son of Benui, and the whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commission to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. My goal in this sermon is to encourage you 
to serve God from God's strength. To serve God from the deep well of God's strength. Self-reliance is crippling. It stems from our pride, and it is folly. It leaves us oftentimes exhausted, resentful, and burnt out. We're called to serve God through the strength that he supplies. That's what keeps us running for a lifetime with the Lord, using our gifts for his kingdom work. So in Ezra chapter 8, we see Ezra, the priest, serve God from the strength that God supplies. So it is my goal to to convince us, to encourage us to serve God through the strength that he supplies. Now I want to walk through Ezra 8 with you by identifying the service of Ezra that is accomplished through the strength of God. We witness here Ezra's faithfulness and God's favor working together. Ezra's faithfulness and God's favor working together. We'll consider four areas of service in the ministry of Ezra and see how each is accomplished through the strength that God supplies. So first, replenishing the priesthood. Replenishing the priesthood. That's the first order of business that Ezra tackles. We see this in verses 1 through 14, this list of obscure Hebrew names that are always difficult to pronounce and to work through. I would encourage you just to just as faithfully stumble through those names. These are God's people of a past generation who sought to follow him, and he used them. So work hard and fumble through those names. These are real people who had real encounters with a real God and served him well. So these are folks primarily in Aaron's lineage. So they are in the priestly lineage, and they were authorized as such to serve God as priests, legitimate priests. And an essential role in Israel's worship was the priesthood. They needed faithful priests who served as go-betweens or mediators who represented the people before God and represented God before the people. Key role, go-betweens. So priests would offer sacrifices of atonement on the people's behalf to God. And then God would communicate through the priests the assurance of forgiveness. So they're this mediator, this go-between, essential in the health and viability of Israel's worship. They needed priests. They needed mediators. And that's what Ezra gets to business here. He's recruited all these people, these obscure names that we read in verses 1 through 14, and he's assembling them, and they're getting ready to journey from Babylonia back to Jerusalem because if temple worship is to be restored, they've got to have priests to facilitate that worship. The temple's been rebuilt. We've talked about that in Ezra. But they need to repopulate that temple with priests. So there's a replenishment going on here. Ezra, the lead priest, is developing and delegating and bringing a whole host of other priests to serve there in Jerusalem. This office of priest is a key rule, key role that spans the scriptures. These, there's three key offices in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. And if you follow those offices, they are a highway to the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus perfectly fulfills in the New Testament those three roles in the Old Testament. He is the perfect prophet, the herald of the word of the Lord. He's the perfect priest, the perfect mediator between us and God. 
And he is the perfect king who leads us unto the way of eternal life and salvation. Prophet, priest, king, when you read those in the Old Testament, know that you're about to get on a track that's going to lead you straight to Jesus. Here we see the priest, this mediating role. Jesus Christ is our ultimate go-between, our ultimate mediator. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one mediator between God and people, the man Christ Jesus. He alone is the one who we go to to find advocacy, as Alex said this morning during the confession time. He alone is our advocate before a holy God. The world of trouble that we are in because of our sin, our Savior Jesus goes before the, the Father, presents himself in mediation and advocacy for us, and communicates the assurance of forgiveness for all who will trust in that perfect priest, Jesus Christ. A key role, he's the mediator, the only means of you having forgiveness and atonement from a holy God is Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Trust in him. See him on the pages of the Old Testament when we see the essential role of the priest, the mediator, the go-between. Jesus is the perfect one. Now, observe this. As gifted as Ezra was, he did not serve alone. He delegated it was essential that he brought a host of other priests because he knew he could not do it alone. Ezra didn't serve alone, and this too is a theme that spans Scripture. So in Exodus chapter 18, Moses is raised up as the leader of God's people to deliver them out of the oppressive hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And Moses begins to hear the, the, the cases and, and serve as a judge and arbiter between God's people as they begin to grow and they need shepherding. And then Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is like, Moses, this is ridiculous. You're going to burn yourself out. You need to raise up other judges, elders, to help you share in the work. And so that's what we see in Ezra 18. Moses is teachable. He said, absolutely, that's a great idea. And so they raise up these elders and they share the load. Ezra chapter 8, Ezra recruits others. He does not serve alone like Moses was open to. And in the Gospels, what does Jesus do? The whole linchpin of his ministry was developing and delegating ministry. Greater works than mine will you do, he says to his disciples. So he develops 12 men. And those 12 men go and they turn the world upside down for the gospel. We are recipients of the investment that Jesus made into 12 men. Jesus didn't serve alone. He developed and delegated. Likewise, in the Acts and the epistles, what do we see the apostle Paul doing as he goes church planting, town to town, city to city. He appoints elders in every town where a church was planted. Why? Because a single pastor can't do it alone. You need others, a plurality of elders to share in the load. I'm grateful for the men that I get to serve with. Dylan, Dave Raffensperger, Alex Grant before him, Aaron Gray, David Linders, Tyson Putz, men that, that over the last seven years of our church, I had the privilege of sharing the load. I am alive and well today because of these faithful brothers. You cannot serve alone. No matter what your ministry is, seek to invite others into it. One of our temptations 
because we want to be streamlined, and sometimes we won't be bothered with the headache of inviting others along, because you're going to invite others mess when you, when you bring them into ministry, rest assured. Is I'll just do it myself. I've fallen into this time and time again. It's folly. You'll lead yourself to burnout, and you will be resentful to others. Invite others and be patient with them, but in time, you'll be healthier, and so will they, and so will the ministry that you lead because you have more people doing it. Ezra didn't serve alone. He invited others. So first, we see him replenishing the priesthood. Second area of service, we see him addressing a need, addressing a need. We see this in verses 15 through 20. A significant problem arises in verses 15 and following. Ezra, he's writing his firsthand account here. Notice the first person pronoun. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava. Uh, that's a, a city in Babylonia. And a, and a canal from the Euphrates River uh, flows from that. And so that's where they're, they're gathering here. And there we camped alongside that river uh, three days. And as I reviewed the people and the priests, I found... There, none of the sons of Levi. Uh, Ezra, this skillful shepherd, wisely pauses before going the 900-mile journey and, and takes inventory. Hey, who do we have? How are our forces? What's our team looking like? And he sees a massive hole in the team. There's a great deficiency. What is it? The Levites. Well, who are the Levites? The Levites are those easily overlooked people in your church who do the grunt work, the logistics, the admin, the stuff that you don't see, the stuff that you don't want to do. They're, they're the Levites. Essential in temple worship, essential in church ministry. They're, the, they're the, the grinders. Often overlooked people worked diligently in the tabernacle before the temple, carrying poles, and curtains, and setting it up, and taking it down. Sounds like church planting 101 to me. You remember down Trapello Road at Avalon Dance and Fitness? Setting up the curtains, taking them down, setting up the pipes, taking them down. It's grunt work. It's tiring, but you need people, faithful, humble people to do the work. Well, these are the folks that are missing, and it's a big problem, because in the daunting work of furnishing the temple that has been rebuilt, but none of the goods, none of the vessels, none of the gold, silver, pots, pans, everything's needed for temple worship. It's not there. They need somebody to go up and set it up and administer all of that. The adorning of the temple, grunt work, but it's essential work. Ezra notices that they're not there. A wise leader knows his people, knows his servants, knows who's there and who's not there. Knows what they need and who they need to do it. He knows they can't go on without them. So he waits by that canal and sends a skillful team to go and find them. He sends some reconnaissance folks up who are skilled communicators to go gather people from this man, Ido in Casafia, which evidently was sort of a, a, a training center or a gathering place of Levites. That's exactly where they go to get the Levites. So he sends people with discretion, skillful communicators to plead and invite them to come. He was willing to be delayed 12 days on the journey because of this need. Uh, we read later in the chapter that they don't leave until the 12th day of the first month. They were supposed to leave on the first day of the first month. 12 days delayed because they needed the full team. Wisdom in a leader. Don't move until you have your full team present. So they wait, and they send this team. Verse 16, 
I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, this key facilitator among the Levites, and the leading man at that place in Casaphia, again, a key location where lots of Levites were, likely were trained there, telling them what to do and what to say to Ido and his brothers, the temple servants at that place, Casaphia. Namely, to send us ministers for the house of the Lord. That's the request. Please send us ministers. Read Levites, temple servants. So Ezra sends for them. Well, how do they respond? Verse 18, and by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, and with his sons and kinsmen. So God's hand of favors upon them. And one key Levite comes and then a host of others follow him. Sherebiah comes and a host of others follow. So, so God, by his good hand, is working favor through the faithful ministry of Ezra. You see this? Ezra's leading. He's taking steps of faith, but he's trusting in the Lord's hand of favor. God works, we work. Ezra is actively dependent upon the good hand of the Lord. They come in the droves. Now they're ready. Now they have a full team. Now they're ready, and they begin to go. Let's just pause here. Let me encourage you as a church member, honor every servant of the Lord in your church family. There is no such thing as a menial gift or area of service. All of them are essential. All of them are valuable in the eyes of the Lord. It is the Lord Christ that we're ultimately serving. So honor those people. Lift them up, especially when they're in the easily overlooked roles or the roles that you only are found out when you make a mistake, like Dylan's doing right here. He's not making mistakes, but you only know that he's doing that when he makes a mistake. Thank these brothers and sisters, greeters, worship guide folders. Thank you, Kim. You do an incredible work at our church. Thank you. Thank people who serve kids. Thank them. Honor them. Bless them. And join in them. Ezra honored these servants, no matter their role. He, know, he knew that they needed one body, many parts. You need all of them, all of them, all of them. Ezra replenishes the priesthood. Ezra addresses the need. Third area of service, Ezra seeks the Lord. Ezra seeks the Lord, verses 21 through 23. Notice how he leads the people in a focused time of seeking the Lord's face. Verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. We'll see why they needed protection in a moment when you consider the mass amount of precious metals, gold and silver, that they take with them. Tons and tons of precious metals that are going to adorn the temple. They need protection from bandits on that 900-mile journey. So he leads his people in a focused time of seeking the Lord through fasting. Now, you've probably read the scripture and you see fasting all over the place. There are different purposes for fasting. We see people in the Old Testament fast because they're grieving. We see people fasting because they're repenting. We see people fasting because they're seeking the Lord's face for clarity, discretion, discernment, or provision. They're seeking the Lord. It's that Last one, they're seeking the Lord for a purpose. They're seeking the Lord's protection on their journey. 
You see this in verse 22. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for our good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. God hears their prayer. God sees their seeking of him, and he responds and blesses them with protection all along the way. They, all the people, and all their goods make it safely. They sought the Lord. Ezra had evidently declined a military convoy, a military escort on the way, which is interesting. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, in Ezra's mind, he didn't want to cast any shadow of doubt in the king's heart that Ezra's God could protect them. He was boldly stepping out in faith because he didn't want to cast any shade on the Lord's reputation that he couldn't protect them along the way. That's his, his heart. He wanted to prove to the king that their Lord was faithful to protect them and get them there safely. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Now, by way of comparison, a leader following in the footsteps of Ezra, a man named Nehemiah, not a priest, uh, but a builder and a leader, a businessman of sorts, goes about 13 years later, and he receives the military convoy. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 7. He receives these papers of protection, a passport of sorts that takes with them and he presents to people as a means of protection. So he receives protection from the king. Isn't that interesting? Two men, 13 years apart, trust the Lord in different ways. One, through the Lord's miraculous protection, declining a military escort. The other, through the mundane, through the means of men and kings to provide protection. Why do I bring this up? Because it requires faith Either way, if God is sovereign and he orchestrates everything and he puts people in positions in medicine, then we can trust him to work bodily restoration through modern medicine. It's, you can trust the Lord through that. We can also pray and trust God to do a miracle in your body as well. So it requires faith through the miraculous and through the mundane. Ezra decided to trust the Lord in a more miraculous way. Just, we're going to go, and we're not going to ask for any military man-made support. The Lord honors that. Nehemiah says, I'll take the escort. Thank you very much. The Lord honors that. Trust the Lord who works through the miraculous and through the mundane. He's sovereign. He gives people minds. He provides protection through a number of means. He provides restoration through it. Just, just trust the Lord. He, he, he orchestrates it all. Seek the Lord in your every situation and trust him to lead you forward. It requires faith either way. Ezra replenishes the priesthood. He addresses the need. He seeks the Lord, a fourth and final area of service for Ezra. He beautifies the temple. He beautifies the temple. We see this in verses 24 through 36. In those verses... We see these temple treasures, the gold and silver, uh, given by the king and willingly offered by the people. They reach their destination. These treasures will beautify, adorn the temple. 
Verse 24, then I set, set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel were, had, were present, had offered. I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver. Silver vessels also worth 200 talents. That's 25 tons of silver. 100 talents of gold, four tons of gold. No wonder they needed protection along that 900-mile journey. A massive amount of precious material. That's why they sought protection. These goods were weighed and entrusted into the hands of the priests and Levites. They began their journey. We see their journey begins, verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, the son of Uriah, and with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, son of Jeshua, Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. Everything made it there safely. Not one vessel was lost. That's the purpose here. God granted them safe passage, and these goods make it to Jerusalem so that it could adorn the temple and make it beautiful. The beautification begins. Why is this a big deal? Because it's a fulfillment of the promise of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7, the Lord said, you will return to this place and beautify this temple. Isaiah 60, verse 7, I will beautify my beautiful house. Ezra is a part of that work of adorning the temple. These treasures certainly beautify, adorn, and furnish the temple. Glorious gold and silver. But friends, there's something more beautiful that happens in this temple, and it comes up next in the passage. Verse 35 and following. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered a burnt offering to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. These offerings are representative of the people. That's what the priests are offering, sacrifices for the sins of the people. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commission to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river and aided the people in the house of God. So what is the most beautiful treasure found in the temple? It's not gold. It's not silver. Those things pale in comparison to a greater beauty that's in the temple. The greatest, most beautiful blessing of the temple is the gift of atonement. The gift of atonement. Sacrifices for the sins of the people that make unholy people right with a holy God. That's what the, the crescendo here. All this adornment, all this beautification, how does it end? The people offering sacrifices, praising the Lord for his provision of atonement. It's the best blessing in the Bible. And it's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All these earthly treasures at the temple, there was an even more glorious heavenly treasure that is atonement for sin. Temporarily provided through bulls and rams and goats. 
But that atonement, temporary as it was, was a shadow of the substance to come in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. These are the author of Hebrews saying, these are just temporary. They're shadows pointing to a substance, and the substance is Christ. Never can take away sins. But when Christ had offered for a single sacrifice, once and for all, for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What a beautiful picture. The blood of bulls and goats, they temporarily provided sort of a measure, but they were pointing forward to a greater sacrifice. Jesus Christ, once and for all, he offers himself and then he sits down. That is the the posture of a king who is enthroned. It's finished. The verdict is final. You are forgiven. He sat down. It's finished. Our atonement is finished through the work of Christ. Trust in Jesus. The greatest blessing, the most beautiful reality of the Bible is atonement through Jesus Christ because you cannot be forgiven any other way. You need Jesus desperately. I need Jesus desperately. Atonement is found in him alone. Forgiveness through Jesus alone. Ezra replenishes the priesthood. Ezra addresses a need. Ezra seeks the Lord and Ezra beautifies the temple. Behind every act of Ezra's service was what? Three times repeated in the passage, the good hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. We witness Ezra's Faithfulness and the Lord's favor. Verse 18, and by the good hand of our God on us, Ezra was able to recruit Levites to come with him. Verse 22, Ezra explains to the Persian king, Artaxerxes, the source of his protection. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Verse 31, Ezra details the protection that his team had received along their journey. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy from ambushes along the way. Who was it behind all of Ezra's work? God's greater work, God's provision, God's favor. We witness Ezra's faithfulness and the Lord's favor. Ezra was actively dependent upon the Lord. And so it is today, if you're a disciple of the Lord, you're called to work heartily unto the Lord, but to entrust your work into his working hands. Active dependence. Use your every gift for the gospel, leverage all that you have, all your energies, all your passions, leverage it and trust it and see what God does through it because he is working. His hand is bigger. His hand is working through our hands. This is the key to long-term faithful service, knowing that we work, but God is always at work through our working. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that good news? How Paul's talking about us working out our salvation, growing and maturing as followers of Jesus along that path of sanctification. We're called to work, exert our energies, but know this, you're not working alone. God is working through your work. That's how it always is. It's the healthy pathway. It's a guard against resentment. We're serving God not ourselves, and it's a guard against burnout. We rely on his strength, not our own. I love to ride the red line in the summertime from Kendall MIT to Charles MGH. Because when you go, you, on a nice day, will inevitably see sailboats on the Charles. 
as you come out of the tunnel after Kendall MIT, you just look on either side of the subway car and you see beautiful water and sails set. And if there's wind, they're moving. The sailboat is a great analogy for our spiritual lives. We're called to work. If you've ever gone sailing, and I've done it a few times, it's hard work. You've got to set the sail and tie things down. But at the end of the day, what are you dependent upon? Fresh wind to propel your sail forward. And so it is in our lives. We work. You need to set the sail spiritually. Use your gifts. Tie things down. Be wise and diligent, but know that you are utterly dependent upon the fresh winds of the Holy Spirit and his power to move you forward. Rely on him. Do your work and trust in his work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the invitation that you give us as your people to work heartily unto you, but to trust you to work through our work. God, would you encourage us? Uh, some of us need a perspective change. Some of us are tired and weary in our work. God, help us to see it's the Lord Christ that we are serving, and it's his strength that we need. Some of us need to engage our gifts more. Well, we're stagnant. Lord, would you, would you jumpstart us with the privilege that it is to use our gifts to serve you? Lord, help us to set our sails and to trust in the beauty of your breath, the beauty and the power of your spirit to propel us forward in this life towards faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.